Thanks, Annabelle. Great to have that uh, in front of us. So we're going to spend uh, tonight looking at those two passages that have been read for us, chapter 13 and chapter 16. So if you want to keep them open, uh, that'd be really helpful. Uh, We're in a brand new series on David, and hopefully you saw the sign as you walked in and you're not surprised about this piece of information. What's the goal of the series? Why are we looking at uh, David? Well, in very small writing under there, but much bigger on this page here, I want to encourage you over this next term and with our other preachers to be pursuing God's heart. Pursuing God's heart. Now, with this in mind, I think the first thing that you think is, is God's heart running away? Do you know, does, does God's heart need to be caught? And that, that's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is aligning our hearts with the heart of God. So what's God on about in the world? Am I pointing in the same direction as him? The more obedient we are, the more we are in line with God's word, the more we will be pursuing the heart of God. And we want to do that because we see that was the characteristic of King David. Have a look at the way his life is summed up in Acts chapter 13. Uh, Paul's, writing, uh, Paul's speaking, he says, After removing Saul, that's the king before David, he, that's God, God made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I said this morning, and I'll say it again tonight, you could think of all sorts of things that you could have on your grave, okay, at the end of your life. Lovely family person, uh, sacrificer of their life for the good of the local life-saving club or something, whatever it is. You can have all those sorts of things. David has on his eternal epitaph that he pursued the heart of God. He was a man after God's own heart. There is no higher or more beautiful account of someone's life than that. And so as we go through this, uh, this term, I hope that you find what it looks like to be pursuing God's heart and that we get to aspire to be a person after God's own heart. How about I pray for that and we'll start. Father, thank you uh, for the example of David. Uh, We know him to be awesome and flawed at the same time. But I thank you, Father, that you encourage us. He was a man after your own heart and we want that for ourselves. Help us tonight and over this term, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you some context for the series, and in order to do that, I'm going to use my Bible timeline. Uh, Some of you might not have seen this before, but it's an overview of the Bible that moves from the Old Testament through to the New, and the pictures are basically the important parts of that story. And so, uh, where does King David fit in? Well, it's a little bit after creation, isn't it? Uh, If we come along a little bit, we'll see that God founded the nation of Israel through his servant, Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great name. I'm going to make you a great nation and you're going to be a blessing to all the earth. This man was the foundation for the people of Israel. But he was one man. They grew into a nation in slavery in a place called Egypt. And they stayed there until a man called Moses said something really famous, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. That's exactly it. Yeah, great. Uh, He said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, ooh, baby, let my people go. That's not the verse for verse, but that is the song. And I could continue with hand movements if I needed to. And if you're an old, if you've been in the church a long time, you'll laugh at that. And if you haven't, you'll look and go, that's just weird, which it truly is. Moses led the people out of slavery and through the wilderness and a whole bunch of trials, brought them into the promised land. 
When they got there, God appointed judges over them and a more motley crew you will not find. Seriously, if you haven't read the book of Judges before, they, they are a disastrous group on the whole. Uh, they really are. But they were people who were ruling under God over his people. And what we're going to see is that the last of these judges, Eli and Samuel, are preparing the way for a big change in the history of Israel. We're coming up to the point where for the first time, Israel has kings. And the first king is Saul, and we're going to have a look at him tonight, and he is succeeded by David eventually. Now, you might be thinking, by the time we go back into the Old Testament, there's a guy who was at church this morning for the first time ever, and he sat there and he said, I thought it was really helpful that you mentioned something about archaeology in the sermon. I went, okay, great. He said, because I'm not really sure any of that Old Testament stuff really kind of happened. I'm like, great. So here's for you too. This is a place, uh, it actually, it was, I, I found this story this week in my news feed. I was like, thank you, this is great. Um, a military fortress called, uh, sorry, at a place called Tel Eton uh, in Israel was discovered and a paper has just been published saying that they believe that this fortress was actually put up in the time of King David. And so they've done some radiocarbon dating Google it if you don't know what it is. It's basically a way to tell how old stuff is. And they found that this building was built around the time of King David. And it's understood that this building is the first of a set of forts that David put in place to control Israel as king. And so it's actually archaeological evidence that David existed. Before this, there wasn't very much evidence, and lots of people started to doubt Big story in the Bible, not very much evidence in rocks and stone. Until they found this amazing stone called the David Stone, (laughs) uh, which is uh, a Syrian king's account of uh, how he won a whole bunch of battles. In essence, it's a boasting stone. He didn't have Twitter to kind of boast on, and so what he did was he carved into a stone, here are all the victories. I killed this king, I killed this king, I killed this king of the house of David. And that's the word that you can see highlighted there, of the house of David. And what they worked out is there aren't any other Davids running around the ancient Near East. No other Davids. And so what do we have all of a sudden in stone is an account of the fact that there were relatives of King David descended from him who were kings in Israel. And there we have it in stone, evidence that David really existed. Now, in order to organize our sermons, I've got a big one-page overview of this series and a timeline on it. And the, the story that we're looking at tonight, the first message, takes place when David is probably, his David's age here, probably about 15, 16, and the date is about 1025 BC, before Jesus. So what that means is the stuff that we're looking at tonight is roughly 3,000 years old. That's pretty old, isn't it? 3,000 years old. Now, the idea of having a king in Israel is not something new. God had actually told them that they would appoint a king when Moses was ruling them. In Deuteronomy, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settle in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. And God gives them some other rules that they subsequently break. But the idea of having a king didn't occur just as a a random idea. God had actually set it up. 
And so a chosen king was God's plan because he was looking forward to an ultimate king who was? Great answer, Jesus, that's right. But they appoint a king for the wrong reasons. And if we look back in 1 Samuel 8, we can see that the people were a little bit frustrated. Samuel had been leading them and his sons were duds. That's the non-biblical account of what's going on. His son, Samuel had done a great job and his sons were terrible. And the people were going, we don't want to have your sons take over. And so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Great way to win favor, isn't it? You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. The way that they had chose to appoint a king was make us like the other nations. And God said, you've become a nation so that you are a light to the nations. I don't want you doing things just to be like the other nations. And so their choosing a king was really rejecting God as their king. When Saul started, the start of how Saul was appointed to the king, Saul's the king that they get. It's really interesting. Uh, He starts off with some lost donkeys. It's a great story. He loses some donkeys and he goes to find them. And along the way, he meets Samuel, who's been told, this is the man. And Samuel takes him aside and quietly does this. Then Samuel took a flask of (coughs) the finest, uh, a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now, this word anointed is the way that you were pointed out to be king. So you weren't made king by getting one of these magnificent things. That is not what happened. Instead, the way you were made a king was by having oil poured on your head. And that became the word, anointed became the word for Messiah. Messiah means anointed. And Christ means anointed as well. Okay? So that's the word. He was anointed. But this guy Saul eventually heads home and and keeps a low profile. Then it comes time for the king-making ceremony. And Saul calls, uh, sorry, Samuel calls everyone together. And a, a tribe is chosen, and a family is chosen, and Saul is chosen. And then they go, where's Saul? And here's what happened. They ran and brought him out, and he stood among the people. In other words, what had happened? They were having the king-making ceremony. He'd been anointed. And what happened was he was hiding amongst the supplies. He didn't want to be found. And so they found him, they brought him out, and the people saw he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. So how does Saul start his kingship? Well, he's anointed, he's reluctant, and he, there's something about him that's notable. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's the guy you would pick from the lineup. Who's going to be our king? That guy. He's handsome and tall. He looks like he's fit for the job. You're our king. So there he is. Saul is appointed. How does this speak to us? I think it's really interesting when we think of how the people were crying out for leadership. I feel personally that Australia has a lack of leadership. Does anyone resonate with this? A lack of leadership. It's not that we have a lack of leadership positions, but we have a lack of leadership. If you look at all the Royal Commission into banking at the moment, probably this isn't the crowd to be telling this to, but I've been stunned at the way the CEOs haven't been doing their job. When I look at different areas of government, I think, 
I see lots of activity, but not a lot of leadership. And what can happen when you're hungry for leadership is you start going, you invest all your hopes. If only there would be a good leader, everything else will be right. And so you long for a leader who will solve all of your problems. And I think this is what Israel fell into. And I want us to remember to seek our leaders under God. God is our ultimate leader. Remember what they said? Not rejected you, they've rejected me as king, is what God said. And so when we have aspirations for leaders to be better, I want us to remember that God is the ultimate leader. Secondly, I want us to think about, do any of you have responsibility? Are there people under your direction? Now, for many of you, that will be the case. When we do that, I want us to lead as people who are under God. See, even the king of Israel was supposed to be a king under the ultimate king who was God. And so if you don't remember that, who do you think is the king of everything? And so we need to learn humility in our leadership and lead as those who have God as our ultimate king. Well, it's interesting to note that Saul led for quite some time. It says in 13.1, Saul was 30 years old when he came to be king and he reigned over Israel, see there, 42 years. I think quite often we're so ready to move on to David that we forget that Saul actually spent a long time being the king of Israel. In fact, two years longer than even David. David reigns for 40 years. And so he still has an impact even as we turn uh, to David. All right, I want you to imagine you're walking through the bush. Uh, What does this sign warn you about? Birthday cakes. Pay that man over there. That's fantastic. Uh, It's not birthday cakes. It's bears. Koalas. That's good. We'll go with bears. It's in North America. Uh, Here's a bear. Now, if you have a bear in the the woods, uh, what's the rule with bears? Yeah, that's good. Sorry? Don't wake them up. That's right. So the rule is don't poke the bear. Okay, if you find a sleeping bear, don't poke the bear. I want you to see in the passage here that Saul foolishly poked the bear. Who was the bear? Have a look with me. Not a literal bear. Have a look with me. We're in 1 Samuel 13, and we'll see what he did. Uh, In verse 3, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. And you're like, how is that a bear? The Philistines were the major military power in the area, and they had been oppressing the Israelites. Jonathan, Saul's son, thought, look, it's just a little outpost. We could free up some some land for ourselves. Let's just knock them off. And what he didn't know was that he was poking the bear. The bear woke up. And how do we know the bear woke up? Have a look down at verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with... 3,000 stealth fighters and 6,000 pilots. No, it says uh, 3,000 chariots. They were the most advanced weapon of war at the time. Probably M1A1 tanks maybe is a better kind of combination. They were the unbeatable battlefield thing. And they had 3,000 of them and 6,000 charioteers. And then just to make sure that you were properly overwhelmed, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash. Isn't that the best name of the Bible? Anyway, at Beth-Avon, when the Israelites saw this situation was critical, they stood up full of faith and opposed them. Now, have a look what happened. They hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, in pits and cisterns, and some of them even crossed out of the country. 
It's pretty amazing, isn't it? He, they poked the bear, the bear awoke, and their answer was, let's run away and hide. It's not very faithful. It's probably very life-saving. I, w- I want you to see what's happening. As, as uh, Saul's army is running away, uh, something important is happening. Uh, not making pies, but making pies reminds me of something. Uh, timing. Uh, has anyone had uh, frozen pie? You've got to get it just right, Yeah. Because if you don't get it right on the timing, what happens? You have a kind of warm outside, and then you keep eating in towards the middle, and eventually you have a crunchy, frozen middle. Yes? Anyone had this disastrous experience? Yes. Probably because I got the timing wrong, Ruby. That's probably what happened. So it's terrible. On the, on the flip side, if you totally nuke it, it turns into a puddle. Yes? You have to get the timing right. I, I, I want you to see, Saul had timing, but he didn't get it right. Have a look with me at uh, verses 8 to 10. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. So what had he been told to do? Wait. How long was he supposed to wait? Seven days. It got to the end of the seven days, and all of a sudden, he acts. No, no, no. Now, I'm going to do this offering thing. And it's worth thinking about why he acted. Why did he act? Why didn't he wait? Saul acted because he felt that not yet, it could never. He hasn't come yet. He hasn't come yet. He hasn't come yet. He hasn't, has he, has he, he hasn't come yet. And what he concluded was, not yet, he's never coming. Do you, do you see that? And so he decided, I've got to act. He also felt alone. Samuel, you put me into this whole king gig. You told me to wait for you and now you're not showing up. He was totally alone and he felt they needed to act to make sure there were some soldiers still with him. He felt weak and getting weaker. I've got some soldiers, but they're running away. This situation's getting bad. He felt that obedience seemed foolish. Waiting seems so dangerous. If they all go, the battle's lost. And more than that, He felt that disobedience didn't look so bad. What's the big problem? I'm just going to offer some sacrifices. It'll be okay. I think we need to think about, will we go with feelings or faith? Samuel had told him that he was going to come. Saul was overwhelmed with feelings of loss and fear, and he was afraid. And so, what did he do? He acted instead of trusting the faithful man who had told him that he was going to come. Now, I think it's worth us considering uh, how we feel about waiting for God's timing. When he gets caught out, Samuel turns up and he activates his inner lawyer. Do you know what the inner lawyer is? It's the little part of me that gives an account for when I sin, but it's actually okay. See, uh, see, God, it, it's okay because it was the men's fault. The men were running away. No, 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 it's actually Samuel's fault. Samuel, if you had turned up, I wouldn't have had to do this terrible thing. Actually, no, it's the Philistines' fault. They have come in such great numbers, I had to act now. Do, do you see how the inner lawyer works? Do you know what an inner lawyer is? Yeah. See, it's really easy to point out our fingers out to others, isn't it? Will we take the time and consider, actually, I sinned. I did the wrong thing. It was no one else's fault. I chose to, and I disobeyed God. It's a terrible choice. Samuel says to him, you've done a foolish thing. 
You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, for a bunch of you, we'd see there's a huge cost. Basically, Saul is told you will lose a kingdom that could have lasted forever because you weren't obedient. And as we do that, we think, yeah, but isn't it, why is it such a big deal? I mean, why is it so bad? All he did was offer a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice to God. Why was it such a big deal? Have you heard of the separation of church and state? You heard about this? The idea that you separate church and state. Now, Israel certainly didn't say we need to separate church and state, but they had different offices that were supposed to be kept separate. So God had a prophet and he had a priest and he had another office called a king. And the idea was God would speak his word as the over king to his king through his priests and prophets. Does this make sense? So this is the way God would keep his king under him. But what we've seen here, the reason it's so grievous is what Saul did was he broke down the barriers and he said, I will be the priest and the king. I will be the one who folds all this power together and no voice will speak to me. Do you see that? Can you see how dangerous that is? Because now he's going to rule without any other voice speaking to him. To truly be God's king, you must be under the word, under the sound of his voice. To truly be God's king, you must be under the sound of his voice. So how does this apply to us, this particular section? Well, we've got a king coming for us. We've been told to wait patiently, haven't we? Have we been told as a church to wait patiently? Who are we waiting patiently for? The return of our Lord Jesus. Do we know what it is to feel foolish while we wait in obedience for the coming of our king? Do we know what it is to feel that we're getting weaker or that disobedience seems like a pretty reasonable option at the moment because our king isn't coming? I think the question we need to think about is will we wait patiently for our king to come? Saul reigns after this, even after he's lost the kingdom, even after uh, Samuel has told him, you're in big trouble, bud. After Saul assumed rule over Israel, it says in chapter 14, verses 47 and following, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Now Saul, it says here, is still doing his job as king. And uh, here's a map of Israel. The red arrows are the different enemies that are mentioned. And here's Saul pushing back as a king on all those who are trying to come into the land of Israel. And he's doing a pretty good job, it seems. Until God gives him a job, he's supposed to knock off a a people group called the Amalekites. And we can have a chat about this later. But God says to him, you've got to destroy them completely. And after he's done the job... What he does is he doesn't destroy them completely. He sets aside all the best things. And Samuel rocks up and Saul goes, hey, I've done everything you asked. And Samuel says to him, yeah, if you've done that, why can I hear bleating sheep in my ears? Oh, oh, about that. That's actually for a sacrifice. Here's what he says to them at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? 
to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Basically, God says to him, you reckon that you're going to obey God by disobeying him, but then buttering him up with a sacrifice, yeah? Not going to work out very well. You need to be obedient. That's what God delights in. And so again, he fails the test. And poor Samuel is in mourning, I think, for the king that he had helped appoint. And then God sort of kicks him in the tail a little bit. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. See, I think Samuel would have sat in mourning the rest of his life. But God says, get up, get on your way. I've got another king for you to anoint. Now, uh, does anyone like this car? Think it looked nice? It's all right. Uh, it's, um, it's certainly polished up. I'm sure Ian would uh, approve uh, of this, uh, this magnificent beast. Now, so that's, that's apparently a supercar, right? But imagine if inside it, there was actually a V-dub engine. Now, Peter, you would love if there was a V-dub engine in it. Would that, right, a Beetle engine? That would be great, wouldn't it? But it would not be great for this car. It would be extremely underpowered. We look at it the outside and think it's sleek and muscular, but on the inside, it's teeny tiny. It's going nowhere. And this is exactly what God says when it comes to the, the, the matter of choosing a new king. Have a look with me at, uh, at verses 6 and 7. These are incredibly famous verses in, uh, in chapter 16. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said, Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, incidentally, I'm delighted that the Lord doesn't look at height. as really important. I think that's fantastic. But here's the thing. I think it's possible that Samuel was about to make the same mistake. Do you remember what was distinctive about Saul? He was a head taller than everyone else. And now here's Eliab, and he is handsome, and he is tall, and he goes, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God says, you know what? Uh-uh. It's not him. God's standard is different. God is looking beyond the outside. He's looking to the interior life. He's looking to what you care about, how obedient you are. God looks through us to our hearts, far beyond the superficial. See what kind of engine you're running, despite the sleek exterior. Now, what happens next is all the sons of Jesse are paraded in front of him. And I've got to say, guys, I cannot get this image out of my head. Every time I hear that the boys paraded in front of, anyway, maybe it's just me, too much Zoolander or something like that, but... um, they have a parade and all the boys walk in front and they, in the end, in the end what happens is all the boys go through and God says, nup, 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 nup. And I reckon if you're Samuel, you're sitting there going, well, I reckon all these are pretty good candidates, but I'm left with no one to anoint as king. So at the end he goes, I'm pretty sure I'm listening to God properly. Have you got any other sons? Oh, yeah, 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 there's the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Go get him. We won't rest until he comes. And so he comes, and when he turns up, this boy is so insignificant, he's looking after the sheep. Lowest job. He's so insignificant, he's not called in when the holy man comes, because he can just stay out there. Don't even disturb him. Leave him out there. He comes in, and God says, this is the one. This is the one that I have chosen. He's a shepherd. He's been doing an apprenticeship with Jesus and the, uh, with God and the sheep, you know? He's out there. 
uh, doing his thing. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. See, what happens is he's anointed, but then he's empowered. He's anointed and then he is empowered. Empowered for the task of leading Israel. And so what we have, cliffhanger, come back next week. What we have is two kings of Israel have been anointed. We've got Saul. And if you're playing along, you go, boo. Do it, do it. Saul. And we've got some bright new thing who's just burst onto the stage who's King David. Okay, but this is a problem, isn't it? We've got Saul and David together. What's going to happen? Come back next week to find out. It's going to be really exciting. Here's the thing. How does this speak to us? I want us to think about our hearts. It says that God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. And I want us to think, would we be found king ready? Would we be found king ready? If God looked at your heart, would he choose to entrust you with responsibility because he knows your heart? And when we feel overwhelmed by that, I want to ask you, will we know the forgiveness of God for our failings? Will we know the forgiveness of God for our failings? Because it's on offer for all who will own them. You know, there's one thing that you have that's better than King David. It's not a crown. It's not oil on your head. Here's the thing that's better than King David. In in Ephesians 1, we'll finish with this. In Ephesians 1, it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, when David was made king, the Holy Spirit came upon him. When you became a Christian, assuming you have done that, God put his Holy Spirit in your heart and it is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You have a promise that is greater than David's. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your hand choosing kings, raising and felling nations. We pray, Father, that our hearts may indeed more and more be found king ready. We pray you forgive us when we fall short of your holy standard and that we would take great comfort and great power from the presence of your Holy Spirit. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, that kicks us off on our David series. Uh, do you have any questions arising from tonight's sermon? Things that you'd like to follow up? I'm feeling the pressure. No, Carrie, you've got a question. Great. Thanks, Jeff. So if... Saul was still king. Yes. And David had been anointed. Yes. Uh, David wasn't really king yet. Yes. So it actually wasn't two kings running at the same time. Is that correct? And so yeah, that's right. He really was just in training until... He was a king in waiting. And so, uh, however, he is now the Lord's anointed. And so it's a very confusing situation for all and sundry, I imagine, including David. Because there is an anointed of the Lord in Israel. Saul is the anointed king. And as we see later on in the series, we'll see that David stops some of his men acting against Saul because he says, this is the Lord's anointed. We couldn't possibly do this. This would be treacherous. 
And yet he is chosen and he is anointed really early. And I wonder, we were talking about this in life group, I wonder if the reason he is anointed so early is so that when he spends time in Saul's household, which he's about to do, it's, it's, he's doing it with a mindset that says, one day I'll get this gig. And so he pays attention in a different way than he would have if he wasn't anointed. Does that make sense? So if he'd been just a, uh, a, a, a liar player in, um, in Saul's household, he might have gone, I'm going to get fat on the great food at the king's table and I'm going to enjoy playing my music and riffs and writing some songs. That'll be awesome, right? How fantastic. But when he knows he's been anointed to be king, he goes, oh, wow, there's a meeting happening today with all the generals and I'm standing in the corner of the room. I better pay attention to how the king pay, you know, talks to generals. Do you get how that works? So I actually think it's the mercy of God to anoint him early so that the shepherd boy, I mean, literally, if you drop a shepherd boy into ruling the nation tomorrow, it's a pretty dud plan, isn't it? Lead. He goes, I don't know how to lead. I can tell some sheep where to go. But instead, he basically serves an apprenticeship in the room of Saul for years. And I think he does it watching how to be a king because he's been anointed early. Does that make sense, Carrie? It's a great question. You've got to follow up. I do. And so following on from that, I know that in the Old Testament that, they, that God kind of put his spirit on the leaders. So like he chose a king and he put his spirit on them. And then at the end of Saul's life, we see him in torment kind of and David comes and soothes his soul. Is that because his spirit was taken from him then and placed onto David? So it was couldn't have them both kind of with that... Oh, that's a really good question. Do you know I, mean? I don't think we're actually told it was taken uh, away. the Holy Spirit came on, uh, on David and then dropped off uh, Saul. I don't think we're told it that closely. But your observation that he's tormented by an evil spirit where David receives the Holy Spirit, that must be significant. Um, and so there does seem to be the anointing stays, but the power of the Holy Spirit is taken. And so we get that great line in Psalm 51, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he's terrified that God will unanoint and empower him for the job of kingship. Yeah. Any more questions? Oh, we've got a couple of follow-ups. Wow, that, that, that opened the floodgates. We'll go here, here, and here, and then we'll stop. Is that okay? Ask away. Okay. So um, God chose Saul, but um, why would people want um, him to rule them if they found him hiding? Like, yes. Like, why would they want a coward as their king regardless of his height? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think it shows that they're really desperate, to be honest. And that when he stands up, because he's remarkable physically, they go, that'll do. Absolutely. We're so desperate to have somebody be the king. If Saul, I mean, if Samuel tells us that that's the king and he looks like a king, game on, even if he was hiding. Okay. I think it just shows how desperate they were, but it's a good question. Why would you appoint the guy who's hiding away? Great question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ali. Um, so in chapter 16, when it says, um, when he goes to anoint, so Jesse comes, oh, not Jesse, David comes in. Yes. And um, it says he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and yes. some features. So is that Samuel just looking for the same qualities or it seems to contradict God says, I, I, think, don't, I, I look for a different thing, but it sounds like he's actually yep. choosing someone really fine and handsome. And no, that's such a good observation. In, in one of the old translations, it says he was fine and ruddy in appearance, um, which I love. Um, I think his good looks is a bonus, and it's not why God chose him. 
Okay? And so uh, it happens that David happens to be devastatingly handsome and women, and, and women will fall in love with him and men will follow him wholeheartedly. But it's the spirit and the heart that's, a, that's the reason God chose him. So I think it's kind of a, a side a point. But it is worth noting, isn't it? God doesn't look at these things and yet here's a guy who's really handsome and he gets appointed to be king. But it's his heart first and we're just observing that he has those things secondary. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. Yeah, I think it's good. Uh, there's one more over here, I think, Alec. Okay, so I've nailed it. Okay, we'll, we'll say that's fine. Uh, okay, let's stop there. Um, thank you very much. Come and, come and bail me up afterwards uh, while we're having supper and we can talk some more if you've got further questions. Can I encourage you to find a Caring Connect card, uh, if you have one, uh, that looks like this. Uh, if you can take it out, it's coming down from the top there. If you can take that out, that'd be really good. Have I got a Caring Connect card? I don't. Um, does everyone have one? If you don't have one, can you please get it out? Uh, I would love for everyone here tonight to at least write their name on a Caring Connect card. Particularly if you're new, uh, it would be lovely to have your details. We won't spam you, but we will send you a newsletter. So uh, please fill them in now. Uh, you might like to let us know something that's happening in your life that we can pray for. Uh, Lauren and Michael and Jeff and I meet tomorrow morning and we pray through all these cards. They will be kept confidential. If there are things happening in your life you'd like us to pray for, please do that. And if you're new tonight, after the service, you can come and chat with me or anyone wearing our green badges. That is a great place to get started in making your connection here at New Life.